Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles, the podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, interpret, and pray with sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I am your host, Chase Krauss. Let's dive in. What is up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. My name is Chase Krauss. I'll be your host today and every day because it's my podcast. Um, fun fact, it is really cold in my office where I'm recording this right now. I don't, you didn't need to know that. I just wanted to share my feelings with you wherever you are right now. Um, so as always on Catholics with Bibles, we start with the Greek or Hebrew word of the day. For those that just jumping in with us for the first time, we're currently in the middle of a mini-series on theology of the body. This is a topic that is uh, pretty uh, close to my heart, and I think a lot of people as well, but it's one that I think a lot of people wish they knew more about, uh, but at the same time don't have the time to like read the entire book because it's huge. Um, so my hope in this mini-series is to kind of you know, go through the text as systematically as we can, as thoroughly as we can, given the time constraint, because uh, I keep these podcasts relatively short on purpose. There's tons of podcasts out there that kind of fall in the 45-minute, hour-long range, and that's awesome. That's really great, and I listen to quite a lot of them, um, but I've found that when it comes to diving into more theologically, theologically deep waters, um, for people who aren't kind of trained or accustomed to listening to that for an extended period of time, anything more than like 20 or 30 minutes can kind of start, uh, you know, just losing people um, and your brain just starts kind of hurting. So that's why I kind of purposely keep this podcast within the 20 to 30 minute range. That being said, like I said before, there is just no way on God's green earth that I can cover as many small details of the theology of the body as I wish I could. I just can't. Wish I could but I can't. So uh, I do, I, we do our best to, to go over the text um, to kind of give a summary, if you will, of the various topics. But if you ever leave an episode being like, man, I wish he would have gotten more detailed, then uh, there are great books out there on Theology Body. Uh, Christopher West has a book literally called Theology Body Explained. It's a really great book. You should get it. Also, uh, Dr. Mikhail Volstein, Volstein has a book. It's a bit more on the academic side, but if you're interested uh, just Google his name and Theology of the Body and you would find it. I think it's called uh, The Mystery of the Logos or something like that. Um, anyway, it's awesome. You should read it. Um, but uh, we always start with the Greek or Hebrew word of the day. And so today we have a Greek word, not a Greek word, a Hebrew word of the day. And the, the Hebrew word of the day is yada. So yada is the Hebrew word for to know or knowledge. And it's going to play into a part in the text we're going to go through today. And on today's podcast, it's actually kind of exciting because we're actually wrapping up the first section of Man and Woman, He Created Them. So this is kind of the first series of reflections that Pope St. John Paul II gave in examining the beginning. But he examines the beginning only because Christ pointed us there in his answer to the Pharisees. That's something we have to kind of remember as we study the beginning. Why are we studying the beginning? Because Christ is re rebuttaling or refuting or answering the Pharisees and why th that Moses allowed divorce and remarriage. And Jesus says, 
you know, did you not hear the scriptures? In the beginning, God made them male and female, and, and you know, they're what God has joined together. Let no man put asunder, all these kind of things. Um, and so, which for the Pharisees is kind of insulting because they literally had those like books memorized. Um, but yeah, so Christ is answering uh, the Pharisees in their refutation of asking why Moses allowed for divorce. And, you know, Christ's response, it's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed this, uh, which is just, I mean, uh, it's, it's just, ah, that's, you know, it's, uh, that's kind of always the answer to sin is it's because of your hardness of heart, right? It's because of your hardness of heart. That's why. Um, but today, like I said, we're going to be kind of uh, finishing up, rounding off this first section of his reflections. Um, and so he ends with this a uh, few different reflections. I think it's only like two or three on this uh, idea of knowledge on this idea of knowledge, what does it mean to know? Where does this stem from? Well, he gets it from Genesis 4, 1. So this is after the fall. This is after Adam and Eve were booted out of the garden, right? We read, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Okay. So, yada is that word, knowledge. And, I mean, I think it's, Fairly obvious at this point, but if you didn't connect the dots, um, in in the Old Testament in particular, uh, this was kind of a, a way to say they had marital relations, right? Um, with while being one modest, but two just kind of showing a little a deeper meaning. What do you mean by that? So this this yada, it's to know, it's knowledge, yeah, and this in the in the intellectual sense, but it's more than that. It's not merely an intellectual knowledge. It's not merely something that you understand in your mind. Rather, it's what's called experiential knowledge. Now, this is something that uh, Saint, uh, Pope St. John Paul II uh, grabs from uh, St. John of the Cross, uh, spiritual theologians. And this is something, it's actually a way that a lot of spiritual theologians will describe uh, prayer or your relationship with God. You know, there's so many people out there that can list off facts about God. They can list off, you know, the Ten Commandments. They have their prayers memorized. Um, they, when they go to Mass, they, like, know what to say, when to sit, when to stand, when to kneel, and all these things. They have this intellectual understanding and knowledge of the, the meat and potatoes of the faith. And yet we wonder why so many people fall away from the church. You know, parents are like, well, I taught them their prayers. I... I brought them to mass, you know, I, I did all these things. But the question isn't, do they know the things? Do they, can they memorize the things? Can they, can they parrot back? Because parrots can do that, right? I mean, that's, that's where the word parroting comes from. We're not meant to be just merely parrots who can, you know, answer back the words that we hear. No, I mean, and too, like, sheep can do that. Sheep follow the flock, right? It's so easy to go to Mass and be like, oh, everybody's standing up, I'll sit up, I'll stand up, everybody's sitting down, I'll sit down. Have you ever been to Mass where, like, somebody, like, stands up or sits down in the wrong part and, like, their entire section follows them because they're not th really thinking, they're just kind of following along? Um, it's kind of hilarious, and I've done it myself. Um, but rather, it's not merely intellectual knowledge. It's not just knowing when to, you know, cross the T's and dot the I's. Rather, we're called to an experiential knowledge, right? For those uh, who are married, or even, you know, when it comes to, you know, uh, your family, siblings, cousins, brothers, sisters, uh, mom, dad, whatever it is, I think we kind of have a, we have a natural understanding of what this means, you know? There's, there's a sense of where, you know, if me and my mother-in-law were to list off everything we knew about 
my wife, you know, my mother-in-law would on paper be able to list more facts about my wife than me, right? She has literally known her longer. That being said, I don't think anybody would argue that my mother-in-law knows my wife better than I do because we have different experiences of my wife. Now, granted, my mother-in-law has an experiential knowledge of my wife. She raised her. But as a husband and wife, you go to that deeper level of, of really knowing who the person is, you know, apart from even the, the marital act, right? That's not even what I was talking about. It's just rather the, the intimacy of mar- that marriage brings in a relationship, right? That's why, you know, as a husband and wife, you shouldn't have a male, if you're, if you're a male, or if you're a female, you shouldn't have a male best friend, or if you're a husband, you shouldn't have a female best friend that you know better than your spouse. That just doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't think that's a healthy thing to do. And I'm not really trying to dive into that too much, but our experiential knowledge of, I mean, should be more for your spouse than anybody else. You should not know somebody and nobody should know you better than your spouse, right? And if you're spending more time intentionally with somebody of the opposite sex who is not your spouse, I think that could be a form of emotional unchastity, right? You are, you know, maybe you're physically chased, but it doesn't mean you're emotionally chased, right? Because you're giving your heart to somebody else more fully than your spouse. And so this idea of experiential knowledge, it's a knowledge that comes by experience as the term applies. It's a knowledge that comes after you spend time with the other person. You know how they would react. You know how they would feel. You have a sense of when they're in a good mood or in a bad mood, right? Um, There's very few people on this planet who can read me like my wife can read me. Um, There's very few people (laughs) who know when I'm actually in a good or bad mood because anybody in ministry or anybody just in a professional work environment knows that sometimes you've got to flip the switch. It doesn't really matter how you feel. you got to get your job done. Well, in ministry, that job involves you being like joyful and happy and like welcoming to people and all these things. And there are times when I do not feel like being joyful and happy and welcoming to, to the people I see in ministry all the time. Um, it doesn't mean I'm faking it. It's just, it's something that I have to put aside my feeling and, and do my job, right? And represent the Lord. Um, but, and there are very few people who, who can know how I'm actually feeling. I mean, better than my, and there's nobody who knows how I'm feeling better than my wife, like nobody. Um, and, and that comes through experience. It comes by spending time with them. And the same thing applies to our relationship with God. We can't just simply talk at God. We have to spend time with him. We have to experience him as a person, right? Not as an idea, not as some abstract reality, but we have to experience the divine. We have to experience the person of God. And this isn't something that we can necessarily do. We can't do by our own merit, right? We talked about this on the podcast before. But God always takes the first step. We're just called to respond. And, and that happens at different points in times. And, you know, if you're a parent listening to this, I just hope you're encouraged by the fact that, uh, you know, obviously do everything you can do to help your kids grow in the faith. But at the end of the day, God's going to call them when he calls them, right? And I think our main jobs as parents and as evangelists is simply to spread the seed. I mean, St. Paul talks about, you know, I simply spread the seed and Apollos watered, right? There's going to be some times when your role is to just spread the seed and hope some of it sticks, right? And there's going to be other times when you see a little bit of a sprout. You see your, your kid starting to like something about the faith or, you know, starting wanting to pray. And then you water that. You, you nourish that, that little 
uh, seed, that little root. And so um, this experiential knowledge is, you know, applied to Adam and Eve here. Namely, you know, Adam and Eve had marital relations, but it wasn't simply that. Adam knew Eve and Eve was known, right? This is kind of when masculinity and, and femininity really comes in because it's in Adam knowing Eve, and therefore he's the, the, that's that initiation, right? That's the kind of masculinity. It's the initiation. And Eve being known and knowing in return, that's that femininity, that's that receptivity, Eve receiving the knowledge of Adam, right? And then revealing more of herself in turn. It, it leads to, you know, organically to fatherhood and motherhood. And, and St. John Paul II talks about this and. I will quote here. He says uh, in Genesis 4.1, commenting on it, the mystery of femininity manifests and reveals itself in its full depth through motherhood. As the text says, who conceived and gave birth. That's what it says you know, afterwards. The woman stands before the man as mother, subject of the new human life that is conceived and develops in her and is born from her into the world. In this way, what also reveals itself is the mystery of man's masculinity, that is, the generative and paternal meaning of his body. So this idea where, you know, a man knows his wife and the wife allows herself to be known and then knows in return. And this, for JP2, organically leads to fatherhood and motherhood. Obviously, procreation, right? As, as Catholics, are the, the two things that always have to be in every uh, marital union is uh, the ability for the openness to life, right, and unity. That's like the two things that, um, you know, that's the fruits of um, the marital act within a marriage, right? It's one, unity, right, and then openness to life. Some people think... Um, that you can only have sex as a married couple if like you want to like have kids. And that's simply not the case. No, the, the church says is no, the marital act is meant for unity and openness to life. It's okay to have intercourse, even if you are pretty dang sure that you're not going to have a kid. What we can't do is impede the possibility of life, right? With uh, a contraception of, of, of any kind, right? Why? Because, in doing so, you are saying with your body, right, that I desire union for you, not because I want to give myself totally, which includes your fertility, but rather because I want to use you as an object of pleasure, right? And then, you know, some people will come back and say, well, what about like after menopause, right? When like, you know, like it's literally just impossible for you to have kids, but that's, that's, you're still within the same two things of unity and openness to life, right? It's, it's not like you're, doing anything artificially to impede the possibility of procreation. And so masculinity, when it's lived out to its fullest degree, and femininity, when it's lived out to its fullest degree, for JP2, leads to its fulfillment in fatherhood and motherhood. Right? That's when these, these things are fully come alive, is in fatherhood and motherhood. And we once again, we read the same quote, the mystery of femininity manifests and reveals itself in its full depth. Right, so when we receive the gift of life, that's when our masculinity or our femininity, when you become father, when you become mother, 
that's when all of that sexual urge, that sexual desire, which is a good thing. It's not bad, right? And JP's just going to talk about this later on. It, it finds its fullest meaning of like, yes, this is why that desire is good because it's come to fruition in a child, right? Your love has been made manifest in a literally, in the most literal physical way possible in this life where you participate in the co-creation with God. And this is something we actually see in Genesis 5, right? So in Genesis 5, the next chapter, sorry if you just heard my pages ruffle, we, we read this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. So this is hearkening back to Genesis 1. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth, right? So that's the same language, right? And it, it's, it says a lot, but in, in simple terms for JP2, he, he says it's, it's showing us that Adam co-creates. He participates in the creative power of the divine, right? And so one thing too that I think it's just cool to point out is, you know, at first we have Adam, humanity, right? The Hebrew word. And then we have Ish and Isha for man, for male and female. And then it's later that we get the name Eve. We go back to three, chapter three, verse uh, 20. We read, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And, and, and it's the same kind of uh, idea for why Ish and Isha, right? Because in Hebrew, some of these words sound the same. And so Eve, uh, it's actually, it's, it's, the, it's the Hebrew word uh, Hawei, right? Hawei is like Hebrew for Eve. And it sounds like the Hebrew word for uh, hey. So Hawei and hey, it's the same root word. Um, for us, it's H, but they don't have the same letters. But anyway, for living, right? So Eve's name is the same root of the word life or living, right? So Eve becomes the mother of the living once she becomes a mother, right? She becomes a mother. She find femininity finds its fullness in her. And so, you know, kind of wrapping all this up with this first section as I've kind of a meaty quote here that I want to share with you guys. And I thought about like, Oh, maybe I should share this part or only this part, but it's all just like, it's so good. And it's, it's the, it's the last, very last section, uh, sort of very last audience of this section. So he's JP2 summarizing kind of everything we talked about with the four, original experiences, right? We have original solitude. We have um, original innocence, original nakedness, original unity, original sin, all these original experiences, right? Um, and he's summarizing all this stuff, the summarizing the theology of the body, you know, the spousal meaning of the body, which we talked about and this idea. Anyway, he's summarizing all of it and it's kind of a meaty quote, so bear with me. Let me read this. For them, the answer Christ gave to the Pharisees who were filled with zeal for the Old Testament is particularly important. And uh, for them, he's talking about uh, people of our age, right? Who are questioning sexuality, God, all these things. Those who seek the fulfillment of their own human and Christian vocation in marriage are called, first of all, to make of this theology of the body, whose beginning we find in the first chapters of Genesis, the content of their lives and behavior. If you are married... Or if you're discerning marriage, according to St. John Paul the Great, 
this book needs to be like memorized basically, right? Um, he says, once again, we find in this chapter is the content, we, we find in the first chapters of Genesis, the content of their lives and behavior, right? I mean, theology body is super important for us to understand as married men and women. In fact, on the road of this vocation, how indispensable is a deepened consciousness of the meaning of the body and its masculinity and femininity? How necessary is an accurate consciousness of the spousal meaning of the body, of its generative meaning, given that all that forms the content of the life of the spouses must always find its full and personal dimension in shared life, in behavior, in feelings. Everything we've been reading about, right? And this all the more against the background of a civilization that remains under the pressure of a materialistic and utilitarian way of thinking and evaluating. Contemporary biophysiology can offer much more precise information about human sexuality. Nevertheless, the knowledge of the personal dignity of the human body and of sex must still be drawn from other sources. A particular source is God's word, which contains the revelation of the body, the revelation that goes back to the beginning. How significant it is that in his answer to all these questions, Christ orders man to return in some way to the threshold of his theological history. He orders him to place himself at the boundary between original innocence, happiness, and the inheritance of the first fall. By doing so, does he not want to say that the way on which he leads man, male and female, in the sacrament of marriage, namely the way of the redemption of the body, must consist in retrieving this dignity in which the true meaning of the human body, its meaning as personal and of communion, is fulfilled at the same time. That was a lot. And just to kind of break it down, first of all, he's saying, like I said, if you're a married couple, if you're discerning marriage, if that's something like in your, in your, in your vision, you need to know this theology of the body because it will save your marriage. It will, even if you're in it, it will save it. If you're going to it, it will save it. Why? Because you'll have a full meaning of the, the beauty of the body, the spousal meaning of the body that our bodies are telling us, right? That we, that we don't make sense on our own. We only make sense together. And this generative, this generative meaning, this procreative meaning of our body, our body longs to find, our masculinity, our femininity longs to find its fulfillment in motherhood or in fatherhood. It's, 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 a, it's an amazing, beautiful gift of God. God is calling us to cooperate, to co-participate in this invitation of creating life, right? And so, and he says it's also a response, right? He says, and this all the more against the background of a civilization that remains under the pressure of a materialistic and utilitarian way of thinking and evaluating. Just as a, just a really quick summary, you know, what's a materialistic view of life? Namely that everything we see is purely material. You don't have a soul. That's not a thing. There is no God. There, there's nothing immaterial that exists in the world. Um, and then utilitarian way of thinking. What is that? Namely that people are, are, are means to an end, right? Which goes against what uh, JP2 calls his personalistic norm. It's a book called Love and Responsibility. It's all about that. It's really, really good. And Kurt, uh, I invite you to read that. Um, basically saying for the personalistic norm is that 
you shall never use a per, another person as merely a means to an end, right? We are the end of ourselves, right? And this can be really hard for those who in the workplace, you know, or even like think of generals in the army where you're just, you know, kind of moving people around to do, get the job done. Um, and in a certain sense, like we have to do those things, but it doesn't mean we view people as merely a means to an end, right? They are in, uh, in and of themselves because of their inherent dignity, right? Um, so that's the materialistic and utilitarian. Utilitarian, utilize, right? To use, right? We're never called to use another. And that's why theology body answers that, right? Because we see that if we go back to the state of original innocence, we know that we don't want to use the other person merely for their body, right? But rather we see the person in the body. They are their body, right? They can't be separated. So we're never called to use them, right? Never called to lust after them. So once again, this is kind of just a summary of everything he's talking about. In the next section, we're going to be looking at, at two different passages, right? So the first one's going to be the Sermon on the Mount, where, you know, Jesus is going to look at the heart and the lesson in the heart. And the second one's going to be Jesus' appeal to the future resurrection, where he says they're not, they're not married or given in marriage in heaven. Uh, just quick, you know, foreshadowing, if you haven't read that part of the Bible, Jesus says, you know, he, he, the Pharisees ask him, you know, oh, this woman, you know, she married a husband, he died, his brother married her, he died, and seven brothers, no kids, they all died, you know, whose wife it, will she be in the resurrection? Jesus answers, it's like, you guys are basically dumb, you don't understand the scriptures, in, in heaven there is no marriage, you won't be given in marriage in heaven, rather you'll be like the angels, right? So that's what we're going to start diving into next week on the podcast, is this next section of the Theology of the Body, once again, I encourage you, if you have any questions, anything I can clarify, just holler, just reach out to me. Uh, once again, thank you so much for joining us on Catholics with Bibles, and we will see you next time. God bless. Yo, 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 yo. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. Y'all, this has been fun. This has been a lot of fun just diving into theology of the body. I was really nervous at first, but man, I'm just enjoying it. I hope you guys are enjoying it too. If you are, don't be afraid to share it. Give us a review. Tell your friends, tell your family about Catholics with Bibles. It helps more people find out about us. So we need to share the good news of the resurrection, Lord, in Scripture. And until next time, God bless.